Hello, and welcome to the Remedy House podcast, where I talk about new knowledge, resources, and books for mental health professionals and healers in the field. My name is Renee Watson, and I'm so grateful to be chatting with you today. If you're new here, welcome. If you're not new, thank you so much for your continued support. Any links or resources mentioned in this podcast will be linked under the podcast tab on my website at Remedy. Today, I'm going to be exploring metacognition and the way it intersects with severe mental illness and mindfulness. While discussing that, I'll touch on the practical applications of the new research on metacognition by neuropsychologists. This topic in particular was one that I was excited to address for my inaugural podcast for Remedy House because it's so closely related to a particular passion of mine which is sociolinguistics. In order for us to be self-reflective, we have to have language and sociolinguistics uh, focuses on the way that language influences culture and the way culture influences language. So I feel like starting here with metacognition is a wonderful place because I have so much love for the way that we use language to interpret our own experience. Okay, metacognition is essentially the awareness and understanding of one's own thought process. So literally thinking about our own thinking. And humans are the only animals on this planet that can do it to such an extreme extent. Typically, the main parts of the brain that are studied in reference to metacognitive abilities are the prefrontal cortex and the insular regions of the brain. As you will find if you do more reading on your own, a little bit more research, these two regions interact with the entirety of the brain to create our our thought life. So these two regions are not the only regions that affect metacognition, but they are considered the seat of the self or the origin of the mind. In Stephen M. Fleming's book, Know Thyself, he describes with great detail and clarity, I highly recommend this book, y'all, the purpose of metacognition in our lives. It allows us to doubt ourselves. Um, It allows us to change our minds, to interpret reality and adjust our behavior to make better decisions in the future. The brain does much of this adjustment and judgment without us. In fact, Fleming and other researchers have found that the more practiced or familiar a task is to us, the more unconscious the decision-making process becomes. So much so that some of the most skilled in any field may find it extremely difficult to teach what they instinctively know and have learned how to do. So this directly affects the way metacognition and severe mental illness interplay. What is significant about these discoveries is the way they inform how the brain works to produce severe mental illness or a narrative of the self, departures from reality, and even bodily disintegration. 
So while reading The Man Who Wasn't There by Anil Anathaswamy, I came across a very interesting bit of information that essentially was the spark for the entire metacognitive rabbit hole that I disappeared into for the last couple of months. The brain functions as an extremely complex predictive machine. So essentially, the brain uses sensory input and feedback from successful or unsuccessful actions to inform future actions so that we may be the most successful versions of ourselves. An example of this would be being tickled. The first time your brain registers the surprising and potentially pleasurable feeling of being tickled by another person's hand, which makes you laugh, in that moment your brain is learning what it means to be tickled. It's learning if you enjoy or despise the feeling of being tickled. And most importantly, it is creating a template for what it may be like to be tickled in the future. So in the future, when you want to tickle someone or you're being tickled again, your brain is going to use the success or failure of that interaction to inform its template for tickling. What has been found is that your brain creates this template. As it creates this template, it's also assigning ownership to the parts of your body involved in the action. That's mostly why you can't tickle yourself. Your body will instinctively dampen your sensory response to your own hand because it can predict what will happen when you when a hand you possess touches your own body. The brain uses similar mechanisms to structure thoughts, opinions, and, and beliefs that undergird your actions and thoughts. It's constantly refining and defining the story you've come to tell yourself about yourself. Fleming states in his book that constructing a self-narrative shares many characteristics with the construction of self-knowledge. So imagine what it would be like if the brain could no longer identify parts of the body or thoughts as belonging to the self which it occupies. Anathaswamy discusses the consequences of this deeply in his book I mentioned earlier. When the brain no longer feels ownership over thoughts, sights, or body parts, there can be a deep rejection of those things and a feeling that we have departed from reality or even from ourselves. There's an increasing amount of research surrounding severe mental illness with psychotic features, such as auditory hallucinations, that aim to tie the origins the origin of these hallucinations with a disconnect or structural abnormality in the metacognitive regions of the brain. Essentially, those who are experiencing these hallucinations may not be recognizing the thoughts in their mind as their own. This is huge because it can and should inform how mental health professionals engage their clients in their clinical work. Being able to give clients and their families a tangible cause or origin for potentially frightening symptoms can be a huge benefit. It can also help to reduce the stigma of these psychotic symptoms as people are more able to accept what uh, that which has a physical cause. That doesn't mean that we should need these things for people to accept and not stigmatize these um, hallucinations. However, it will help. 
Um, also, this can refine the psychotropic medications being designed for psychotic symptoms to hopefully reduce drugs with poor efficacy and costly side effects. Um, this new information has begun to influence the behavior modification and talk therapy treatment modalities, which is incredibly beneficial for clients. One such new treatment modality is metacognitive therapy or MCT. It's begun to be recommended for the treatment of schizophrenia in Germany and Australia as per Fleming's book, which was recently released. Before we move into my final point, if you have enjoyed this episode so far, I encourage you to sign up for my Substack newsletter for which the link can be found on my website. That is where you will find more resources on this topic that I'm not able to link or reference here. It's also a great resource if you prefer to read a concise article about new mental health research, books, and the like. Okay, now for the more practical side of this conversation, metacognition and mindfulness. It's common for mindfulness and metacognition to be used interchangeably or to be thought of as the same. However, that's not quite accurate. While metacognition is the ability for us to think about our thoughts, mindfulness is the practice of becoming aware of our thoughts as they are without alteration or judgment to include thoughts that may have been become unconscious or repressed. Mindfulness can only be achieved because of our metacognitive ability. This means that an increased practice and application of mindful practices can increase our ability to monitor our thoughts or metacognition effectively increasing our client's global insight, which is when the real work begins in session. If you are a practicing mental health professional or you have ever been in session, you know that insight is worth its weight in gold in that it can incredibly change the future of treatment with that client, but also the treatments or the practices or exercises we use to increase insight very typically are met with resistance. Um, If you've been following me for any amount of time, you've very likely heard me talk about my favorite form of mindfulness, which is journaling. Um, I do not suggest journaling as a replacement for mindful awareness, taking time to sit in solitude with your own thoughts, getting to know your thought life via introspection and meditative mindful awareness. However, I do feel like it is a familiar and more tangible, so less slippery way to introduce a client or resistant client to mindfulness practices. Journaling allows your brain to interpret your experience or story, if you will, from a more objective perspective. Fleming, in his book, talks about our ability to be more thoughtful and accurate when evaluating the actions of others that we can't than we can with ourselves. Journaling allows us in a very simple way to look in a mirror and begin to understand our minds with greater clarity and potentially less bias. In my Substack newsletter, I have a few more practical tools for assessing and increasing metacognition with your clients. As ever, I have done my resource research, but you should too. Check my sources against your own and always exercise sound judgment. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to subscribe because I would be glad to have you back for each new episode. I'm glad you have joined me here today and would love to hear your thoughts. So reach out to me in the comments via Remedy the Remedy House website or find me on Instagram. 
We'll talk soon.